Hey y'all, tis the season for a Mayday episode. So today, like we always do, we're going to talk about some black labor history. Specifically though, focused on black women today. In St. Louis, the fight that these women waged for economic justice was about more than wages or hours. It was about dignity and a higher quality of life overall, which has some lessons for today's labor movement. So let's get into it. My guest today is Professor Kiona Irvin of Bowdoin College, and we're talking about her book, Gateway to Equality, Black Women and the Struggle for Economic Justice in St. Louis. Let's go. Because we're talking specifically about like a fight for economic justice among Black women in St. Louis from about the 30s to the 60s, what did economic justice look like Mm -hmm. for them? It looked like kind of decent living, you know, which meant being able to afford housing, clothing, access to leisurely activities in the city, being able to, you know, take part in those, you know, that kind of thing. It also meant, too, sort of dignity on the job, being treated with respect. You know, in this time period, workers are really pushing for all manner of labor reform, you might say. And for Black women, that dignity meant recognition, that they, too, were workers, that they, too, were part of these movements for greater justice, to understand them, too, as sort of political leaders, which they were, in fact, but to be recognized as such. You know, to have their employers recognize the, their union and basically honor the labor laws that were being set in place. Even when those labor laws ignored Black women, Black women were workers were trying to apply those to them and wanted pushed employers to make some sorts of like changes to their to their working arrangements. So had a very sort of practical level to it, but it was always for for Black women to to be, I think thinking through work and pushing for, you know, worker justice was radical in, in, in these periods. And the ways that they did it, I think, were, were, were pretty important. The fact that it wasn't just about money, but it was also dignity is a yes. really interesting point because, like, yeah. the labor movement is often seen as very white and very mm-hmm. male. Yeah. And even when we talk about Black labor, last hired, first fired, yeah. it's usually about Black men. But... Black women were out here working, too. That's and right. In St. Louis, you talked about even a lot of times they were the breadwinners in their family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, that's exactly one of the, you just named sort of one of the, the larger points I was trying to make is that there is lack of recognition of Black women in these spaces of, of labor struggle. And it's not just the problem that they're not there in our histories when they were actually there in the past doing this kind of thing. It's also that our sort of conceptual understanding of what the labor, the labor movement was during this period or how labor organized or the stakes involved in labor organization. Our understanding of all that is limited when we're not sort of thinking about how Black women were approaching these questions around economic justice and work, the organization of work. So it's about saying, hey, Black women were here too, and actually doing some important work in terms of political leadership that centered workers' rights. But that when we start to sort of think through that lens, we have just a a more thorough and, and expansive understanding of what labor struggle was in this period. And that really matters too, you know. 
because your book spans about three decades, kind of yeah. what women are fighting for changes. So let's just start with the first example, nut pickers in St. Louis. What were the conditions of their work like? Yeah, so actually this story of sort of the nut pickers is sort of the anchoring story for me of the entire book. Like I began when I was writing, I began with this story. Yes, it, it appears sort of first in terms of the chronology, but it's also first in a sort of like fundamental sense of sort of framing the entire book. But yeah, the, so the conditions of their work, nut pickers had it among the least paid in terms of those who were engaged with factory employment or industrial employment in the 1930s, they were subjected to some of the sort of harshest conditions. So long hours, um, they worked in factories with very poor ventilation. You know, there wasn't necessarily like a, a sort of set schedules for break time and just respect on the job. There were segregated working conditions within the factories themselves, they were deeply marginalized as workers within sort of industrial employment. And they were also sort of a hidden group within sort of the world of you might call like Black community organizations or Black sort of advocacy. They were marginal even within those particular sectors, even as Black labor was an important piece to the work of these groups. So they lived and worked near vice districts, quote unquote, vice districts, right? And sort of by association, you know, sort of deemed outside of the realm of sort of the respectable worker subject, you know? So they're marginal in, or marginalized in multiple ways, but um, they did it because they had to. Real quick clarification. When we say nut pickers, this was not a job like picking nuts from the ground, this was a job that involved separating nut shells from the actual nut that people ate. Also, because nut pickers were marginalized both in the workplace and in their own communities, they had to get creative. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't like on sort of the radar in the way that domestic workers were, which had long, not so long, but for, her, for a time had been the focus of a lot of sort of organizing or just advocacy by sort of Black leadership class or even Black women who are working sort of within these organizations as well. Granted, they were a smaller sort of sector of workers, t- to be sure. And not that folks didn't know what was sort of going on. But again, I think it had to do with sort of a understanding of what was considered respectable work, work that could be building cases for Black citizenship. Like they just didn't sort of fit that mold. I mean, you had blues artists of the time writing songs about the nut pickers. So they were well known in that way, but writing about sort of issues that that we might call dirty laundry issues within sort of these communities. Like one of of the blues songs I found about the, the workers talks about how women were the breadwinners and how essentially there were sort of patriarchal responses to that by Black men, which included violence against sort of Black women who sort of brought their checks home. So, you know, it's these sorts of layers that I think made it to some, not the sort of cases that they wanted to sort of touch and build a sort of public advocacy campaign around. So, yeah, it, it's it's interesting to sort of note, and this was something that sort of just kind of came up in the research with sorts of workers became more prominent in the public versus others. But in terms of what what they did, though, how they organized and what they actually like 
pulled off. It's a remarkable story. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's talk about this strike that they organized. Yeah, so they find the organizing apparatus of the Communist Party as sort of the, for them, best place, most generative place to do the work of earning higher pay, of working shorter hours, of ending this racially and ethnically segregated workplace and so forth. And so they find actually resources, connections that, that extend beyond St. Louis. So folks like in Chicago are talking about what the, what the, the nut pickers are up to, you know? And so those networks are really important for, for instance, providing like mutual aid resources during the course of the strike, things like that. There were no shortage of articles written in Communist Party publications about what these women were doing. So their stories was being circulated to great effect, I think to powerful effect in terms of sort of the organizing campaign. Yeah, so they, they strike, they take sort of to the streets, they are involved in marches to City Hall, they are involved in confrontations with municipal leaders, they are often joined by local Communist Party leaders, some who came from even, even further outside, even the Midwest, sort of support in some ways, but their own families, their own like community members would join them on, on, on the picket line. There are, there are sort of language in the, in the records around husbands joining their wives on the picket line, which is very interesting to, to sort of think about in terms of the gender politics of it all. To get back to this point about the significance of Black women's wage earning, you know, to sort of the survival of Black families and Black communities. And there are these sort of points of solidarity too. So even as sort of this blues music is noting sort of moments of conflict and areas of conflict and abuse, right, even, and violence, there are these moments too, along with that, within all of that, of sort of support and, and sort of solidarity within families as well. So you have a great mix there. But yes, they found a good deal of support in, the, in terms of working with the Communist Party. And local Communist Party leaders, you know, were certainly wrapped up in the larger sort of party politics of it all. So the goal of, of turning these women into Communist Party members and leaders was certainly at the forefront. But that did not prevent sort of the opportunity of providing, again, at the local level, important resources to sort of do movement building. And so that's that's why I think the sort of emphasis on the local is really important, because on the ground, Black women who worked in these factories were like, oh, you're going to support us. You're going to like help hold these meetings, find places for us to meet and all of that. And will we do our strategy and help us sort of build our leadership apparatus? And they're like, yeah, we, we're, we're going to do it. And they end up winning some of the demands that they made, significant ones around conditions and around sort of wages. The point sort of about the recognition of their union, not so much. Almost as soon as they won, they sort of lost in a greater way as you have sort of the phenomenon of runaway shops starting to occur, at least in this example, in the 1930s. So that, you know, by like, say, the late 1930s, early 1940s, you're not finding the Funston sort of nut company with all of its factories, even in the St. Louis area. But what's interesting is that they run away to the south, further south, to set up shops in Texas. But there you have a formidable campaign of worker organizing among next workers in particular, 
who, you know, essentially do on a broad, much broader and larger scale what the sort of smaller group of black women would do in St. Louis. So it's not that they escaped <laughs> worker organizing, even though they tried. So it's an interesting sort of coda or something like that to the story. One of the things you talk about with this campaign is the way that because a lot of like black institutions did not support it, mm-hmm. like these black women called those organizations out. Like with they the did. church and yeah. Urban League wouldn't help them. They called these organizations out as not helping them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, this gets to sort of the concerns around sort of these established Black organizations. Many of them were, of course, um, sort of interracial, either in composition or in terms of like the supportive network that helped them remain active, actually. And so their concern was the fact of the affiliation with the Communist Party, right? And so we have like ideas around the Red Scare and sort of the the notion that like, you know, we need to, in any cost, sort of stay away from radical sort of worker organizing. Well, that's happening as early as the 1930s, you know, um, even when the, the Communist Party is sort of radical labor organizing, sort of defining this period. So these organizations like the Urban League in particular, which was really in St. Louis and, and, and elsewhere for sure, really kept a close watch on the labor situation, voluminous records about all things Black employment in St. Louis and followed the strikes and knew where workers were finding jobs and knew the employers who were actually hiring and knew what places to try to avoid because those employers were abusive or whatever the case may be. And and had a sort of advocacy arm, which is one of the arguments sort of I make in the book is that it's the women's division of the Urban League that during the 30s had a really important emphasis on Black women's labor. But again, the, the associations, the fact that, that these women like, you know, Carrie Smith, Cora Lewis, who were involved in the Nutpicker strike, who were actually leaders of the Nutpicker strike, the fact that they were unapologetic about their ties to the Communist Party, the fact that they were willing to be sort of critical of Black church organizations, even to a degree sort of critical of some sort of Black, as I was saying, advocacy organizations or interracial um, organizations, speaks sort of volumes for their sort of courage, I think, and their like willingness to prioritize their own needs, knowing that they would they would sort of lose the potential of, of support from those sources. But they like the militancy, the labor militancy of a group like the Communist Party. And, I mean, the Communist Party had advocated for the Scottsboro Boys in the Deep South. You know, they were willing to sort of take on these cases that had what was understood at that time, the sort of controversies of race and gender and sexuality and so forth, um, where in this case, Black young men were clearly being, you know, abused by the state apparatus, right? They went to bat for them. And that's not to say that there was an absence of Black organizations doing that. But in terms of sort of the local scene in St. Louis, who was going to essentially truly support this particular group of Black women, there was a lot of synergy going on between them and and what the Communist Party was all about. And I should say the party itself benefited mightily from the work of these women. I kind of argue that this particular strike put the local Communist Party on the map in a way, you know, it, that actually it's the, the Funston nut strike of the early 30s that initiates a sort of decade, decades, in fact, of, of labor organizing in the city. And, you know, Communist Party, it, it developed a kind of credibility, you might say, 
through the work that these women perform. I think we should talk about domestic workers just as a contrast to the networkers. Absolutely. So on the show, we talked about domestic workers before in the way that their conditions of work were particularly hard to organize because each woman went out into a house and like mm-hmm. kind of whoever hired them had a lot of control over them yes. because you went out and you weren't like working with other people. So just rallying together for rights was hard yeah. when the new deal passed and there were like rights for workers. They specifically like ignored domestic workers. That's right. But the interesting contrast with nut workers and domestic workers was the way that they actually did have a lot of support from the Urban League. Totally. They did. Really, you might say that Black migration to St. Louis becomes so intertwined with history of labor, Black labor in St. Louis, and even further, Black women's labor in St. Louis, which took the form overwhelmingly of, of domestic employment in the city. And essentially, the Urban League was acting as a kind of like you know, employment bureau, if you will, roughly speaking. So they, you know, women, Black women from places outside of St. Louis, a lot of them from the South, like the Deep South, Mississippi, and so forth, would write to the Urban League and say, you know, something to the effect of, I'm trying to move away from here for these reasons. Sometimes they would go into detail, sometimes not. I want to get a picture of what's going on sort of in St. Louis in terms of the employment landscape or uh, I have a, a cousin, a brother, a sister, a friend, a family member, someone who's already there. Can you help connect me to them or with them? Or I'm looking for housing, like that kind of thing, right? And so the Urban League was essentially fielding these requests. And so Black women domestic workers were the ones who were essentially, I mean, let's just put it out there, really giving the Urban League, helping to seriously define its purpose and meaning in the 1930s, because there were so many of them who were going through the Urban League and pushing, really. This is sort of the point of thinking about, well, how did domestic workers sort of organize themselves, given just the sort of limitations that you described, right? So part of it is that they used Black organizations or Black advocacy institutions like the Urban League to sort of push them to become sort of advocates for them in a larger sense, providing resources, definitely getting involved when there were disputes on the job, sort of helping and not not like that. The Urban League, for instance, wanted to mediate conflict <laughs> between employer and employee. And black women were saying, no, we want you to be our advocate as in like tell them, you know, that they're that they're in the wrong, which, you know, they certainly were. So they were the focus of for a time because of just their sheer numbers. And also because of the ways that they pushed this institution to take a sort of step in directions that were generally uncomfortable for them, to try to try to really push them to become in some ways a labor, to function in some ways as a labor union. That was the significance of the kind of work that they did. I should also say, as I mentioned sort of briefly earlier, is it, it, that it was the women's division within the Urban League. So like basically Black middle class professional women who you know were were in social work, who would, who were studying, were producing studies even, but studying certainly the sort of landscape of Black women's employment nationally, who were working in specific with with sort of these women and doing the work of that sort of advocacy that Black women workers themselves were pushing for. So they 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 played a significant role, not without conflict and class sort of class 
sort of conflict there between the two groups, but certainly an important sort of connection that made possible the ability of, of domestic workers to build a kind of collective identity in conflict with their employer, like to build a sort of apparatus that pushed back collectively against their employers. They both basically wrote themselves into the New Deal, as you were saying, like with the New Deal had, you know, was was not in was 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 not into them or ignoring them. You know, they found ways to sort of carve out space and write themselves into it, even if if not like formally, right? But certainly in these sort of ways that mattered greatly in terms of local politics. Yeah, there was this really interesting way where which we're saying they became a collective. So instead of you just going out and hiring like an individual woman and being able to set the terms, you had to come to the women's division of the Urban League and they set the terms. Exactly, exactly. As you said, the, the women's division in specific, they are through negotiation, through some forms of pressure. They're building sort of labor policy in some way with respect to domestic work. And I mean, it's it, and it, we're, they're covering matters, certainly over hours, but also over conditions like trying to establish with employees that, you know, domestic workers will not do these sets of things, right? If they work overtime, they will be paid for it. One example that often came up, they won't wash windows like from the outside, a very sort of dangerous activity, right? This is about sort of building also a sense of sort of dignity as these workers understood it. What workers would be called by employers, you know, I mean, these kinds of things. I mean, it was it was just sort of on that broad sort of scale of labor policy and an absolutely centered dignity. They're basically writing for the labor policy, crafting it for themselves. So cool. So domestic work had this element of being rather unpredictable, not being covered by the New Deal. So a preference particularly during World War II, were defense jobs because factory work was seen as more stable, better paying. And ooh, there's this really interesting thing in the book where you talk about like men kind of were enacting citizenship by serving in the military. That was their way of saying like, we are citizens because we could fight for this country too. But black women saw this like image of like Rosie the Riveter and they were like, we are citizens because we are going to go and do that. We're going to go and do this like critical work yes. to supply the army. Yes. Right. Totally. I mean, what I sort of try to describe when I start to talk about ramping up of industrial production around World War II and trying to emphasize this sort of sea change, really, there's all of this sort of conversation around citizenship being tied to support for the war, military service, and so forth, right? And Black women, again, are a sort of critical part of this public discourse in the sense that they're saying these jobs that you say you need to be filled for the war, for war production, right? While the men are away, you know, these sort of gender configurations, the men are away at war, the women are at home, but they're stepping up to support the war by by working in industry, right? Black women are, are essentially organizing around this principle, in this case, particularly through the March on Washington movement of the 40s, not the one that, that we know more about, often we know more about of the early 60s. But yeah, essentially organizing through that particular group and saying, yeah, we have something to say about citizenship, you know, and, and so much of the work of sort of the labor organizing that these women were doing in the 40s was about sort of exposing the gap between rhetoric 
around American democracy, which was flooding you know, every sort of nook and cranny of public life in order to build up support for the war. They were sort of, you know, pointing out the discrepancy between reality and, and rhetoric and saying, actually, if this sort of democratic thing that you speak of is going to be sort of a reality, it's going to actually make a difference, you've got to deal with the fact that you're calling for woman power, quote unquote, but you are turning Black women away from these jobs at almost every turn. And so you have a formidable campaign of women, again, along with the March on Washington movement of the 40s, which was one of the largest, St. Louis had one of the largest, most active chapters in the country. But Black women were using that organization, again, as this theme of trying to sort of build advocacy, a sense of collectivity around uh, petitioning the government, essentially, pushing the government to be a kind of leader in breaking down sort of racial barriers in industrial employment. Um, the March on Washington movement actually threatened to do a march on Washington. This is sort of A. Philip Randolph and other important leaders. Should Roosevelt not respond accordingly and deal with sort of the racial issue in employment? And Roosevelt was like, okay. <laughs> and has this sort of executive order that basically if, if any sort of industry has some sort of governmental contract that it could not practice racial discrimination. Now, was that really enforced? Not really. But it provided a sort of, again, apparatus for lodging complaints, filing complaints against companies. And so Black women are heavily involved. In fact, their stories of discrimination are shaping sort of the framework of Black sort of movement building, of Black citizenship, the material basis for, you know, arguments about the right to Black citizenship are being built through the stories that Black women are crafting about the fact that they're being sort of turned away or discriminated against. Going up against these massive companies in St. Louis that have, you know, mighty contracts, big contracts, a lot of money on the line, and they are using testimony. Testimony is was always a sort of critical tool of organizing among Black women, especially for these Black women workers. They would simply tell their stories. And those stories became the basis for, I think, a rather robust, powerful movement in St. Louis that centered the right to work and to work with dignity. Yeah. It's so interesting that the way that they rallied was like just mass applying for jobs Mm -hmm. so that I mean, they would either get the job or they would experience discrimination and they would take that complaint. And you talked about it would be even like middle class women who weren't yes. looking for these jobs would participate just so that they would also have those experiences to keep petitioning the government that like this promise that you gave us is not being fulfilled. Absolutely. And and it's in keeping with the times that, you know, that women would become workers, you know, even middle class women, especially for black women. Right. Because their sort of class status is is showing up sort of differently than even like a middle class black woman. It's not a, a white, you know, middle class right woman uh, in terms of earnings and where where one works and so forth. But, yeah, they were they you had black middle class women who were working in factories and arguing that look at this sort of demonstration of a kind of like support for the war. But this is a double D campaign. It's like victory abroad at sure, but victory at home as well. You know, and without sort of the two connecting, there's no like true sort of democracy. They were the ones making those those sets of arguments. 
really calling out sort of this the, the patriotic rhetoric that was so, 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 so rampant and so pervasive in the culture, but through their work. And that's sort of the, sort of to connect to what we were saying in the beginning of just like the significance of Black women's presence and organizing it within the labor movement. I mean, here's a great example of that. Like a lot of these struggles around just articulating the problem with like racial discrimination in employment, like just, just framing it, you know, and then imagining ways of being liberated from it or ways of certain of reforming it get built through Black women's organizing, but the ways in particular that they're thinking about their work and how to like make it better. I don't think I've ever heard the Double V campaign center Black women, but they were out there doing it too. Right, exactly. And changing the thing itself, you know. So a lot of times, even when we put Black women into the stories, we want to show too how their that the presence made the thinking different. Like it changes the sort of plane upon which this struggle is 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 sort of emerging. It's like the thing itself is also shifting. And I, I think that's so important to articulate, to point out sort of at every turn. Your book starts and ends with a rent strike. That's right. Which, yeah, when you think about like labor struggles or when yeah. you frame something as like economic justice, housing might not be something that immediately comes to mind. But when we talk about Black women, as you were saying at the beginning, it's not just about money. It's about dignity. Yeah. And the right to housing that is affordable and also livable is part of economic dignity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was a sense of sort of seamlessness between the right to a decent job and the right to decent shelter and affordable housing. And so what I was trying to do sort of in, in just ending on the note of the, the rent strike among public housing tenants was to essentially say that there are these sort of three decades roughly of organizing in the city of St. Louis that is working class based, that is emphasizing sort of the rights of black workers, again, to jobs and housing and decent living and all of that. And that black women's organizing is fundamental to shaping the very terms of that struggle, you know. And so the, the women who live in public housing were at every turn and doing engaging in all kinds of demonstrations, direct action campaigns, advocacy, meeting with municipal leaders, challenging them, being a disruptive force in city politics, in every turn making connections between the fact that for so long black women were not recognized as those who were again part of questions around economic justice or labor justice and that Labor justice is housing justice, is what, what uh, you know, it means to sort of live a decent life, what it means to be a sort of citizenship, what it means to be recognized, what it means to have dignity, like all of that stuff seamlessly connected. So to me, as sort of the historian sort of looking through these records, it made sense to sort of end at that moment. So women were talking and, and you know, as they're striking the, the St. Louis Housing Authority, they're saying part of the problem here is that there's this culture of neglect, disregard for our, our lives, broadly speaking, you know, and, and this is a problem of jobs as much as it is building housing and then being quite neglectful in maintenance and, you know, all kinds of things. So, yeah, withholding rent, withholding their, their time, their energy, their resources, shook the foundations of these municipal institutions. 
Yeah, you talk about when public housing first emerged, it was kind of this promise of like, this housing is going to be affordable. And I mean, when they first built them, it looked, it was like nice housing. It had a lot of amenities that people were very excited about. That's right. That's and right. And then it kind of immediately was neglected. And because this was housing for marginalized people, the government just kind of ignored it after, after a while. Exactly. So much neglect, so much surveillance of these residents um, this is the sort of era when, you know, incarceration and surveillance and sort of the punitive turn by the state is starting to unfold. You know, this is that moment. And what th- these women are doing, I think, essentially is sort of contributing to these discourses around, like, what does it mean to, like, to be a, an urban resident in this period? Like, what do I have a right to? Do I have a right to a city? Do I have the the city? Do I have a right to, to public space? Do I have a right to uh, affordable housing, right? And they're, of course, saying yes to all this through their, through their actions. But in terms of their ability to articulate the stakes of the matter in that moment, they're, they're among the leaders in that, in, in, in capturing all of these connections in a very powerful way. So, yeah, let's talk about the rent strike. Absolutely. It's a rent strike that occurs across various sort of public housing structures in St. Louis after years and years and years of neglect, essentially, by the St. Louis Housing Authority and just sort of municipal apparatuses more broadly. And so women in particular, public housing tenants themselves sort of organized through the channels that they had already sort of arranged, basically sort of these sort of like small community organizations within public housing structures and across them sort of built upon that, as well as sort of the support of community leaders, those, for instance, who were involved like in religious institutions, some of those involved in local politics, supported them and things of that nature. But they went on strike to basically call out the St. Louis Housing Authority. They had been for years just trying to secure basic maintenance to make this a safe environment for all who live there, you know, have access to decent food or, you know, public transportation. All of these things were on the line, getting to the point of like, what does it mean to sort of live in a city in the late 20th century? Like, what should one have access to, no matter one's wage or one's earnings, right? These are the sorts of questions they were raising. Yeah. And so they withhold their rent for months, in fact after not being listened to, not being supported, regarded by these forces, they take to the streets, they engage in all kinds of forms of direct action, but most importantly, they withhold their rents. And that forces the the St. Louis Housing Authority to give in. What's so significant, I think, about the rent strike is, in part, the way that it sort of sets the stage for reform in public housing policy on a national scale. Because of Pruitt-Igo in particular, the sort of story of Pruitt-Igo, the housing development there had become sort of notorious, you might say, in public discourse. And because of this strike and just because of sort of the advocacy going on among these women, they sort of push their stories into the, the realm of public policy. And so there are all kinds of like uh, housing policies that are implemented as a result. And it's, so it's, it's not to sort of end on a note of, you know, and they live happily ever after and all things were, were made right. I mean, that's not the story at all. It's to show rather that 
actually what I start to sort of say is that these victories within the economic justice framework lead to Black women in particular becoming a kind of target in the turn toward sort of the punitive, the rise of sort of mass incarceration, the challenges to the welfare state, essentially, right? The challenges to the removal of sort of the financial support for anti-poverty programs. So that's sort of what we're starting to see in a post-rent strike sort of sort of age. So it's not to sort of end on an upswing, not not in the least bit, but to just sort of demarcate a moment of pretty intense and powerful and significant local organizing that helps to sort of build again a, a, a struggle, a black working class struggle, a black working class inflected struggle. And that has significant um shaping of, of local politics in a city that's often overlooked, not anymore now because <laughs> of more recent events, but a city that was often overlooked. Oh, whatever Black people make progress, there's always got to be that backswing mm-hmm. of like Reagan mm-hmm. calling the same Black women who are like doing this struggle like welfare queen. It's just... That's uh, it. Right. Okay. So this is my Mayday episode. So we're Yes. As we're looking at labor in the past, I kind of want to look at like the labor struggle right now. Organized labor is kind of having a comeback. That's true. Yeah. In America right now. Do you see any through lines or lessons for what is happening right now? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the lessons might be just the significance of knowing these histories. You know, there, there, there are differences between then and now that are significant and that will shape how we think about labor organizing today and how we go about doing that work. But to know there's this history of Black women doing this sort of work, at the very least, provides a sort of set of possibility, like the way that we might even think about our imaginations as needing assistance in these times, right? How can we imagine different futures, better futures, better worlds? Well, it helps to sort of know that there's this sort of lineage or genealogy of struggle by Black women around economic justice questions. That for me, as far as I see it, and, and, and many others uh, who study this, were among the most expansive, generative ways of seeing struggle, labor, care, solidarity that you could find. Right? And so the, the fact that these notions of dignity and economic justice are built in such expansive ways that, it, you know, these women were saying it's all over, it's everywhere. And if we're not sort of thinking about the connections between them, then what kind of movement are we really building if we're, si- if we're building sort of silos of issues? So certainly, and I think you see examples of this in domestic worker organizing today, I think is one key example of building on that that way of thinking about labor again in these deeply, deeply broad ways. I'm heartened by the fact that the labor is, yeah, it's just sort of on the map in a way that is promising to me. And I think there's a lot of important work by organizers who are trying, I've, I've talked with so many of them. They let me sit in sort of on their strategy sessions and they want to know about this history. They, they're they like, let's do study as well. In addition to the work they're doing, they're very busy already, but let's let's involve intentional political study into our work. And they tend to pick these moments, the stories of labor struggle that aren't like, as you were saying earlier, just sort of making the headlines, but that are so significant for helping us understand how we might strategize in our own time. They were out there doing the work way back. And carving out spaces for themselves, even when they were they were excluded, I think that's significant. 
intersectionality made progress for Black women workers like such an uphill battle. Right. It is so encouraging to know that like some of the most marginalized could be the most creative and make some of the most impressive progress. Thank you for coming on my show. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. I really appreciate it. Incredibly, this is Mayday episode number three. This is our third time here. So thanks for sticking around, y'all. And keep telling everyone you know about this show. Oh, and follow at We The Black People Pod on Facebook and Instagram. All power to all people, y'all.